Hi, this is Frank Schaefer. I have had the pleasure of talking to some of the leading authors, artists, activists, and change makers of our time on this podcast. And I want to personally thank you for subscribing, listening, and sharing 100 plus episodes over 100,000 times. We have a lot of work to do to heal our divisions and secure our democracy. And I look forward to more conversations with those important voices that will bring clarity to the situation we find ourselves in as we move toward November of 2024. If you appreciate these conversations and my cultural and political commentary, please subscribe to this podcast in conversation with Frank Schaefer on your favorite platform and to my substack, It Has to Be Said, which can be found at frankschaefer.substack.com. I'd really appreciate the help. Thank you. Of course, you know, evangelical Quakers are, are far more fluid in their theology than dogmatic evangelical Baptists. Of course, some, some Calvinists really have no choice but to be dogmatic because it's been foreordained. Mm-hmm. I'm just yeah. kidding. Uh, I get that. That'll be, that will go over the heads of many of our folks. But believe me, I was, I was raised from my mother's knee to get that joke. Hi, this is Frank Schaefer, and you are watching and or listening to In Conversation with Frank Schaefer. And today, my guest is uh, Paul Anderson, who is a professor of biblical and Quaker studies at George Fox University in Newburgh, Oregon. Um, He is also the extraordinary professor of religion at Northwest University of, and Paul, how do you pronounce that? Well, the way I say it is Pachefstroom. It's, it's Pachefstroom, South Africa, which I guess is an Afri- was that an Afrikaans word or is that a, an Ar- a Zulu word or what is that? I really don't know. I think it might be Afrikaans, but okay, sounds like it with the strewn in there. Yeah, that's right. I, I've I've been there, but I don't know the origin of the words. Speaking of which, where is the university in South Africa that you teach at, as well as the one there in Oregon? Uh, yes, it's about a two-hour drive south of Johannesburg. Okay, right there, kind of in the district where a huge meteorite hit. A thousand. Yeah. yeah. Is that if you drive from Johannesburg to Pretoria? Is it? I forget if that's south. If Pretoria is south or not? Is it beyond Pretoria? Uh, well, Pretoria is a little bit north of Johannesburg. Okay, so, so I got turned around. It's north, right? To be about about uh, well, about, about hundred miles south of. Yeah. Well, I lived in South Africa for a year while I was directing two feature films out there in the mid 80s. So so I know the area, uh-huh. but it's a long time ago now. Yeah. <laughs> I lived in Johannesburg. Yeah, yeah. Which, which is a great city, of course. Yeah, yeah. This was just on the cusp of Nelson Mandela being freed and everything changing. But I got in just at the end of the apartheid era. How long has your association been with the um, university out there? Yeah, well, as uh, an extraordinary professor, now, now some people are ordinary, but yeah. some are extraordinary. Yeah. I am. So uh, this is basically an arrangement that was set up by Jan van der Watt, where some of the South African universities um, make connections with uh, professors around the world who yeah. help their students, help them get published. Uh, also, <laughs> they have a responsibility to bring attention to that university. Yes, I see academic status. Do you teach the same thing there and in, in you do the biblical and Quaker studies? I find that an interesting combination. So the Quaker studies, I'm guessing, is both 
as a historian and also a theologian, or is it part of the uh, biblical pr project and you are a Quaker? Explain a little bit to us about that. How, how do you come to be a professor of biblical and Quaker studies? Yeah, so... Uh, interesting combination. Yeah, um, it's part of my calling as a scholar and interpreter of the Quaker tradition. Uh, I was editor of our denominational magazine for a few years, Evangelical Friend. Mm. I was editor of Quaker Religious Thought, which is uh, the leading uh, Quaker theological journal. So even though I'm an evangelical Quaker, uh, I also work with Quakers from all parts of the larger Quaker world. Some are very liberal, uh, some are more orthodox, but uh, yeah, so I, I, I work as a Quaker uh, theologian, mm. um, but also I'm a biblical scholar. My specialty is Gospel of John and uh, also Historical Jesus. So really the title uh, came about because of who I am, as they're thinking about, okay, what shall we call Anderson over here? They decided to give me, uh, you know, the, the kind of a title of, of the kind of stuff that I do. Yeah. How have the the Quaker studies, the biblical studies, the evangelical label, and all the rest of it sat with you in the trajectory of the last five or six years since Trump came on the scene as the new leader of the American evangelical movement? I'm being a little bit facetious, but you know what I'm getting at. Yeah, sure. Well, well, Trump has become a champion uh, for those uh, opposing liberals. And so you can appreciate how um, evangelicals might gravitate toward that, uh, while not necessarily agreeing with all that he does and says. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the evangelical name has, has taken a battering uh, under under Trump, and of course, you know, evangelical Quakers are are far more fluid in their theology than dogmatic evangelical Baptists. Yeah. Well, of course, some some Calvinists really have no choice but to be dogmatic because it's been foreordained. Mm -hmm. I'm just yeah. kidding. Uh, so I get that. That'll be that will go over the heads of many of our folks. But believe me, I was I was raised from my mother's knee to get that joke. I I totally get it. The whole predestination, free will, yeah. Calvinism, and all the rest of it. But. I guess what I was driving at um, in a sort of a little bit of a flippant way, but now to get really deadly earnest, is it seems to me that if I was going to describe the religious opposite of Trumpism and still keep it in religious terms, it would be the Quaker faith. Maybe I'm a little wrong on that, but I, I can't think of something more diametrically uh, opposed to what the religious right has become in its white nationalism, but also even Christian nationalism than Quakerism. I'm not an expert on Quakerism. I come to this from an evangelical background that's pretty well informed, and I have uh, always enjoyed everything to do with the Quakers and had a great deal of respect for them. But just talk about the fact that as your understanding of, of the Quaker faith in the context of what is now a Christian nationalist movement, which has taken over the Republican Party, as I see it, and how how you would interpret that as someone who studies the Gospel of John and studies the history of the Quaker movement, and you, in terms of your own denominational association, it seems like you're a bit of a fish out of water right now in terms of mainstream American Christianity. Yeah, um, and I think it's a pretty good place to be. Yes. Uh, because Quakers have always um, opposed dogmatism. Yes. They've opposed, in that sense, you know, while, while agreeing. Okay, so, so, so like, uh, first of all, the, the larger Quaker movement is hugely diverse. 
And so you have different sectors of the of the Quaker movement, even in the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, General Conference is going to be far more liberal, um, uh, much much more fluid in terms of theology. Um, uh, sometimes even questioning whether they should be called Christian or not. Yes, As a Quaker historian, I would say, well, Christ centered um, conviction is is part and parcel to the Quaker movement. Mm-hmm. Um, but then again. So my my more liberal Quaker friends would say, yes, um, we, we we believe in that which is of God in every one, uh, but not necessarily. It doesn't have to have a Christian label to it. Now I might look at that and say, yeah, of course. Well, that's Christ. That's the light of Christ uh, that it, that is accessible to every one. Although that doesn't mean that everybody discerns it right and is following it right. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, so, so then you have uh, uh, more orthodox uh, pastoral friends in the middle, Friends United meeting. Um, you have kind of an offshoot of friends, which are conservative friends, which opposed some of the orthodox friends in the 19th century. Uh, they wanted to preserve uh, conservative plain speech, plain dress, not wearing fancy clothes and that kind of thing, like uh, Joseph John Gurney and some of the more well-to-do friends in the yeah early 19th century. So conservative friends will try to preserve up like the and thou language as opposed to ostentatious you language. Um, that particular testimony, I think, is best understood simply as simplicity or as egalitarian. Just to interject quickly, when you use the word conservative there for folks who are not acquainted with this, yeah, yeah. of course, you're talking about <laughs> the kind of conservatism that in another context is manifest by the Amish wearing traditional garb and driving horses and buggies and living a, a simple lifestyle, there's a certain convergence there, but it has nothing to do with the modern notion of conservatism as in the right wing of the Republican Party or Fox News. Um, no, very, very different. <clears throat> so this is like in the 1840s and 50s that John right. was saying, hey, wait a minute, let's not be ostentatious. Uh, let's yeah. Let's not be materialistic. And so, therefore, as, as uh, William Penn founded uh, Pennsylvania, welcomed the Amish and other dissenting groups, other pacifist groups to, to come from Europe where they were persecuted to come to the United States. Uh, really, William Penn w- was sitting at Pennsylvania as, as a holy experiment. Mm-hmm. What would it be like to establish the kingdom of God on earth that didn't have a standing army, didn't have a police force, but people were simply living by the, by, by the covenant of, of God with Christ. And so um, uh, sometimes the Amish uh, will be associated with plain Quakers, uh, conservative Quakers, uh, simply because some plain Quakers, not all of them, um, you know, w- would, would still use plain dress. Now, evangelical friends um, felt alienated from some of the other Quaker groups. And so in the 20th century, uh, they kind of came together four yearly meetings, uh, Ohio, uh, uh, Kansas, uh, Colorado, uh, Oregon, and formed Evangelical Friends Alliance, 1965. And that was simply a matter of saying, hey, we are really Christ-centered. We believe in evangelism. We believe in the Great Commission. Um, So uh, a couple of other early meetings joined uh, like Southwest Early Meeting in California, Alaska Early Meeting, there's a part of missionary projects. So of about 90,000 Quakers in the United States, about one-third of them are Friends General Conference, about a third of them are Friends United Meeting, about a third are Evangelical Friends International. So now it's an, an international movement, Quakers in Africa, South America, and that kind of thing. Uh, so this is kind of the North American region of Evangelical Friends International. Uh, to, to your earlier question, though, um, um, Quakers 
as evangelicals, have steered away from nationalism, uh, although we also love America, but really uh, trying to be pacifist or, or really opposing militarism as a form of nationalism. And so, and so in those kinds of ways, uh, evangelical friends, I mean, I can't speak for the movement overall, but but have been, you know, still, still uh, fairly um, th- um, theologically grounded in in a kind of biblical way, but also concern for, for social concern and concern. Yeah. It seemed to me just breaking in for a moment that in, in, in the reaction to Trump and also the convergence of some factors, you have the great resignation going on where post COVID people are renegotiating their labor agreements and contracts with companies or quitting saying they don't want to go back to work full time. They want a simpler lifestyle at home to continue now after COVID, they do not want to go back to the office as it was before. They do not want to define themselves by their career title as they did before. They have sort of woken up to the fact that interpersonal connection was more fulfilling for them. And then on the on the kind of blue collar labor side, you have people refusing to be abused as they were, you know, as essential workers. They want higher pay and more uh, dignity with their jobs, per, paid parental leave, for instance, and these things. On the other hand, we have this huge failure in, in Afghanistan, and um, we we left that uh, debacle behind in a somewhat bumpy way. But with the number of younger people declaring themselves nuns, N-O-N-E, right. um, as in we're not going to be affiliated with any religion, there's kind of two things going on. There's a, a departure from religion altogether, not necessarily from spirituality. And I guess that's a big preamble to the fact that it would seem to me that as we come out of this COVID era with the disillusionment with our neoliberal global economy and so forth, that if there's ever been a time in the last couple hundred years when it would be the Quaker moment, as in, hey, we've been here the whole time, there's an alternative. Uh, If you want any form of Christianity, this may be it. Is there any sense within uh, the Quaker community now that you know of that this is a moment of opportunity in terms of allowing people to understand there is an alternative to what you might call the Trumpian Fox version of evangelical Christianity and nationalism. And it's not some newfangled thing that Frank Schaefer's just cooked up in his book or something. It is a historical movement that's been there the whole time and been completely true to itself uh, in a very honorable way that very few other groups can claim. I just wonder if there's any talk about that. Um, I think that it's just saying, well, of course, what else would you do? Uh, the goal yeah. is Jesus. How do we do that? Well, we've been here all the time. Now, now, now here's where I think the religious society of friends really builds on John 15. Um, it's not just for one denomination to do that, but the calling of all believers is to be following Christ, uh, to follow the way of Jesus. One cannot further the kingdom of God by going against the way of the kingdom. And so in that sense, uh, to take seriously, Jesus saying, put away the sword, um, love your enemies, um, love God, love neighbor, love enemies. Okay, and also love one another. <laughs> yeah. and, so, and so emphasizing the love of Christ, which embraces people you know, with legitimate social. Now, now, here's what I want to say. I think that's the best way to be evangelical. Uh, just because some have sullied the name, it doesn't mean the gospel is no longer. So I think 
question is how do we recover authentic evangelicalism or, or just authentic gospel living? And we might need to find some new language to do that. But I think that speaks to the spiritual concern of the nuns as well as the needs of the world. Yeah, I mean, my point of view is rather different than yours. You know, I don't consider myself an evangelical by any stretch or any definition and define myself these days as an atheist who believes in God and that I bring a level of spirituality and prayer to my life, basically because that's how my mother raised me and I'm comfortable with it. But on an intellectual level, I do not look at the Bible or anything in it as kind of special information or divinely revealed or anything close to it. I also note that of all the great world religions, supposedly great, you know, however you use that term, um, that there is no, uh, you know, universally recognized religion that was founded by and or headed up by women, which I find weird these days. Um, I'm not saying they should have been in sort of an equal employment sense, but it seems odd to me because the most consistently spiritual people I've ever met and the ones who helped me the most, and the only reason I'm not a an atheist, period, rather than an atheist who believes in God, is because of the involvement and ministering to me and for me by um, some very formative relationships I've had with women, including my my wife and my daughter and my granddaughters and so forth. I've been working on a project for the last six years, which basically sets out a premise that I think would fit in well with your Quaker philosophy, but I don't want to put words in your mouth. And that is, um, I've just published this book, Fall in Love, Have Children, Stay Put, Save the Planet, Be Happy, in which i make the argument that we define our lives by how we define success. So if we define success as material gain, our job title, money, power over others, living by the sword, in other words, in some form, either corporately with shareholder profits or literally by the sword, we're going to have one sort of life and it does not lead to joy. If we, if we live by another standard of definition of how we define success for ourselves in our culture, which is the quality of our interpersonal relationships as those who give care and receive care, we will have more joy. Now, where I differ with my evangelical past is before that, I would say, well, that's, you know, Christ said this. And so we follow him and we have this teaching. I I think the only reason the words of Jesus resonate is that evolution said it a long time ago, that in our hunter gatherer phase and throughout evolution, the only reason we're still here is because there were caregivers. Yes, there's rape, there's pillage, there's war, there's murder. But if that was the norm, Paul, you and I would not be having this conversation because nothing would have survived. The norm is caregiving. Mm -hmm. And so we all have that in our history. And that's why I think the words of Christ resonate. Mm -hmm. So from a Christian point of view, you can say, well, that's all part of God's great plan. Okay, fine. We'll leave that discussion aside for the moment. But the comforting thing, it seems to me, coming out of an evangelical background um, of the gospel or Quaker background, is that this, this message of caregiving Uh, And the receiving of care and the giving of care trumps um, acquisition and greed and, and, and profit and war and has through history or nobody would have survived, which makes me kind of an optimist about the future. But it also makes me think that people would be very open to your message. That's a very roundabout, weird way to put it all, I guess. But I guess there's a question in there somehow. So let me just see how you respond to any bit of that or none of it. Hi, this is Frank Schaefer. If you appreciate my cultural and political commentary, please do me a favor and subscribe to my Substack, It Has to Be Said, which can be found at frankschaefer.substack.com. 
You can subscribe for free or you can kick in a couple of dollars a month and help me out and help me keep this going if you're able. Either way, I'm incredibly grateful for your support and most of all for your participation. We have a lot of work to do to heal our divisions and secure our democracy as we move toward November of 2024. And every subscription helps create, build, sustain, and put voice to this movement for truth. Thank you so much. Well, let me first of all correct you on the women issue. Um, you look yeah. at Simple McPherson, uh, one of my colleagues here, um, Leah Payne. She did her she did her PhD at Vanderbilt on on women uh, leaders of the Foursquare movement. So there's sure. an example of Pentecostalism. Also, Quakers played a role in the Azusa Street revivals in 1906. Yes. And so you've got some of those kind of connections. Hey, talk about those for a minute because not everybody knows what those are. Well, in, in 1906, um, you have people coming together um, for revivals, uh, for for spiritual meetings, like um, you know, uh, uh, um, inviting everyone and just preaching, and the spirit was poured out. And and if you look at the Pentecostal movement in the 20th century as beginning in 1906, my goodness, half a billion people around the world consider themselves Pentecostals or Charismatics. Mm. Now, what, from a Quaker standpoint, Quakers would say, well, yeah, that's New Testament Christianity. You know, I mean, OK, look what happens in Acts chapter two and the kind of points that you're making. When people are really filled with the Holy Spirit, then they come together and they share what they have. Hmm. Oh, Acts chapter four. Uh, so it basically is, oh, a commonwealth. <laughs> Speaking about political theory, um, that's the origin of a commonwealth idea where people share with one another and care for each other's needs. You think of, you know, um, uh, uh, Carlos Ortiz, you know, down in Argentina saying, hey, you know, love one another. Oh, people began, you know, giving each other money in church. <laughs> yeah. Well, and the thing at my point wasn't so much about that, but I, I agree with you and I'm glad you bring it up was more the sort of origins of our, our big religions are all male leaders, whether it's Buddha or Jesus or whatever, which is kind of a pity. It's too, too bad Jesus wasn't a woman. There are a lot of people these days thinking about this issue. Um, a friend of mine, Beth Allison Barr, wrote this book, The Making of Biblical Womanhood, that I interviewed her about. Mm -hmm. And she's gotten some notice of because she's an evangelical professor um, and uh, teaches. Uh, and her husband, who was a pastor, but he got fired because she started writing about biblical womanhood from a feminist perspective. And it went down so poorly within their, their big denomination that nothing to do with you, by the way, not the Quakers, but that so that tension is still very real within the evangelical movement. In other words, we have a pastor's wife who's a professor, a PhD, a brilliant woman. And instead of him being the scene as an asset, because she's teaching a, a form of biblical feminism, um, you know, Beth's husband gets fired. So I, I kind of look at the evangelical movement as, you know, somebody like you, Paul, I think is so exceptional to it in terms of the actual norm these days that I'm not sure it's redeemable because there's some good guys around like the Quakers. Is that too cynical? Um, yeah. Uh, in other words, uh, okay, so I, I, also as a New Testament teacher and scholar, uh, I've written an introduction to the New Testament for Abingdon. It's called From Crisis to Christ. Okay. Mm -hmm. in textual intro to the New Testament. And I don't believe that Paul in saying, you know, I forbid a woman to teach a man, that kind of thing, that the issue there is genetics or gender. Uh, I think that Paul is, is uh, first of all, he's, he's more conforming to kind of social um, conventionality. Yeah. You know, 
Greco-Roman society. Uh, he's probably been teaching men on the marketplace. So the issue there is not, sorry, you're the wrong gender, but you need to learn more about Judaism. Uh, that's probably the issue. Paul is ministering alongside women, and he thanks people at the end of Romans, you know, people from Corinth. Who, who, sure. so, so women in the early church were leaders of worship. And so, and so I would say that that is the literal meaning of the New Testament. Mm. That, that um, uh, a person, if they're, before they're gonna become a teacher in the church, needs to be grounded in scripture. That's the issue, not the wrong gender. So yeah, and she makes the point too, that in the middle ages, there were a lot of very well-regarded and followed women yeah. preachers. Yeah, yeah. And she has quite a history of that in the book. Yeah, and I mean, I mean my, my, my grandmother and my mother and my sister are all ordained ministers. Quakers call it recording. So God ordains, humans record that God has ordained in public ministry, okay? Yeah. It really is an attested um, acknowledgement of ordination. So I, I, I hate to say this, but being a woman in my own family heritage has never been a disadvantage. Yeah, I mean, we've got women leaders, and I've got three daughters, and they're amazing. And so, and so, and so, what I would say, Frank, is that is that evangelicals who deny women the opportunity to to minister fully. I'd say they've got the Bible wrong, and they've got theology wrong, and they've got praxis wrong. And so they need to be uh, more faithful to scripture and more faithful to church history. Because they yeah, and that's, what, that's what Beth argues very well, and you do too. Uh, and I'm curious, just to turn personal here for a minute, since we were talking about your daughters there a second. Um, how long has your family been involved with the Quaker uh, faith? And also... What's your own personal history? You know, my life journey starts in an evangelical Protestant mission missionary household. Francis Nita Schaefer, Libri Fellowship, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Okay, where's your journey start? Yeah, well, Parents, family, my, tell me about yourself a little bit. Well, my, my grandfather uh, and grandmother on my mother's side, uh, my grandfather was founder of Friends Bible College. That's Barclay College in, in Kansas. Yes. In fact, born there. My parents were teaching there when I was born. My, my father was academic dean. But I was raised in South America. My dad served in cultural affairs, Medellin, Colombia for four and a half years, Guayaquil, Ecuador, Santiago, Dominican Republic. So, you know, I was globalized uh, when I was five. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so there we worshiped uh, in the English speaking churches. In Dominican, we had English speaking worship in our house and we invited people come and worship with us. And my father would read a sermon from Norman Vincent Peale, and my mom would play the piano. Our cat would eat lizards and, and mice on the front rug, you know, yeah. during, during open worship. So uh, I, I was really raised ecumenically. Uh, then coming back to the United States instead of Oregon, my, my dad taught at Malone College in Canton, Ohio. So there we jumped into uh, Canton First Friends Church. Um, evangelical, but not all that concerned about being Quaker, but, but I was interested in Quaker stuff. And so um, after graduating, feeling a call to ministry there at Malone, uh, I went on to Trinity Lutheran Seminary in Columbus, Ohio for a year. And then Elton Trueblood at Earlham School of Religion said, oh, come study with me at Earlham. Uh, Don Green, our pastor then, came out to Oregon. 
And so I transferred to Earlham School of Religion, where I pastored a little Quaker church 22 miles away. And Elton was a great mentor to me. I mean, he's kind of the dean of American religious writing. And um, since since the past, uh, the, the parsonage was 22 miles away, Elton gave me the key to his library. And so I, d- I did my study four days a week right there in Teague Library with Elton Trueblood. So there, um, I felt, Frank, uh, something of a calling to be a bridge between divided Quakers. And so, you know, I I, I learned Quaker history. And and also, that's where I took a course on the Gospel of John from Alan Culp, who had just done his PhD at Harvard. And um, that's where I realized, oh, my goodness, I should probably look at John's Christology (laughs) as as a doctoral subject. And doing my PhD at University of Glasgow with John Riches uh, on on the Christology of the Fourth Gospel. So so kind of kind of developed um, uh, within the Quaker movement, but also kind of a bridge between different groups of Quakers. Uh, helped organize the World Gathering of Young Friends 1985 at Guilford College in North Carolina, where we drew together 317 Quakers from all over the world. And that was a huge cataclysmic experience. I mean, I mean, we had liberal Quakers from England coming there, and we had African Quakers standing up and singing during silent worship. <laughs> it was just an absolute blast. But we really felt the spirit leading. And, and in, our, in our final uh, meeting for worship, um, where we were trying to approve a minute of, of, of how God had worked during our time together. Um, we, we had a really good statement, um, and, and yet some of the liberal friends said, you know, I'm a little concerned that we don't have any atonement language uh, in this document, if that's important to evangelicals. Mm-hmm. A Bolivian Quaker said, oh, no, that's fine. We're talking about Jesus. Uh, you don't need to include everything in theology. But that, that just gave me a sense of concern for alternative theological perspectives that really do represent the love of God. Mm-hmm. We came to unity and improved the minute, which actually has been traveling around the world. It's kind of a classic statement of Christian unity or of, of Quaker unity. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I just had lots of experiences among different groups of Quakers. And um, yeah, so, and, and, and actually, the more I learn about the Bible, the more Quaker I become. That's a, that's a good statement. Yeah, it's a solid statement. We uh, are talking today with Professor Paul Anderson. Uh, this is In Conversation with Frank Schaefer, both a podcast and a Facebook Live event. It is being recorded. And if you are listening to this as a podcast or watching it on YouTube or connecting through Twitter, whatever it may be, um, I hope you like our conversation in both sense of the word, that you enjoy it but also that you like it on whatever um, you are watching it on, if this is a podcast or a video, and spread the word so other people can share this. Um, Professor Anderson is Professor of Biblical and Quaker Studies at George Fox University in Newburgh, Oregon, also teaches in South Africa. Now, a few minutes ago, you mentioned a book. Um, Talk about your book a little bit here. Tell me about the books you've written or the book you've written Let's discuss the subjects that you put into print and when they came out and uh, get into that a little bit. Yeah. Hey, well, th- thanks, Frank. And, and great tracking with you. Um, by the way, uh, here's my copy of your father's book. There you go. <laughs> for 30 years, really appreciating his critique. And you've got the good card cover edition there. Hang on to that. 
<laughs> and so I just appreciated your family. Uh, also, I, I love your mother's book, A Way of Seeing. Yes, good book. That is such a beautiful book that Edith Shaver talks about perspective and mm. ways of looking at things. And I can see in some of your interest in discernment, uh, uh, like dividing truth from error, uh, really we're looking for a way of seeing that's not dogmatic and kind yes. of uh, it is oriented towards the truth, which is always liberating. Mm. Mm, I appreciate that. So talk about your book for a minute, the one that you mentioned a moment ago. I don't want to screw the title up because I haven't gotten in the note here. I've I've written five books and I have edited and published another twenty five. But what's the most recent book? Because we we chatted about that a minute ago, and I just my introduction to the New Testament is called "From Crisis to Christ." Okay. It's a textual introduction to the New Testament. Published... And who is that book aimed at? Like, what's the style of writing? Is this an academic book or for general consumption or or what? Well, it, it's 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 for everybody. Um, it, it's one that I use in, in my undergraduate classes, and I also use it in my graduate classes. But I also hope that pastors will read it and others will read it. Um, let, let me tell you how it's different from other introductions to. I was going to ask you how is it different from all the other books with similar titles. Well, first of all, I, I, I'm deeply honored. It followed Bruce Metzger's uh, introduction to the New Testament for. Mm -hmm. And so the editors came to me and said, uh, Paul, would you write an intro to the New Testament following Bruce Metzger? I, oh, my goodness. Bruce's is my favorite New Testament intro because he gets into the history of early Christianity and says, here's the backdrop. Here's the content. So the way that I approached um, each, each of the okay after an intro, then each of the 13 chapters, um, the way that I approach each chapter is to look, first of all, at crises and contexts. So instead of saying, well, here's what scholars think about this and that, what I do is to say, well, here's what Josephus says is going on back then. You have the zealots that are trying to push the Romans out and that kind of thing. Here's what the Pharisees are doing. Now the Sadducees. So, so in each chapter, I'm looking at crises and contexts. Mm. Then I'll look at the literary features of each book or set of books. So here are literary features of Matthew. You have a birth narrative. You have five main discourses. Oh, my goodness, the five books of Moses, the five discourses of Jesus. Uh, so, so look at literary features. Then I'll say, OK, what's the theology of this particular book within its context? And then I'll close each chapter with three questions. As we think about the context then and the context today, how does this content speak to our contexts? Hmm. So I'll do something like, okay, if you have Pharisees back then saying, if we can get the Bible just right, then God's going to bless us. Well, how does that address current fundamentalism? <laughs> or how about this? If Jesus is getting at the heart of Hebrew scripture or the heart of, of the law of Moses in a radical kind of way, instead of a legalistic kind of way, how can we interpret Jesus in ways that are getting at the heart of Jesus and his teachings instead of making Jesus into a dogmatist? <laughs> so again, learning from what we have in scripture to think about how to be closer to Christ, closer to the original meaning, uh, and therefore challenging dogmatism as we interpret this stuff. Mm. Um, the, the book fits well within a semester, like into thirds. So here's the gospels and Jesus. And then here's Acts and writings of Paul. Then here's general epistles and Revelation as the last, you know, of the book. So it, it, it works through the material pretty well. Um, I do include a bibliography at the end. Here's a bunch of other, you know, intros and, you know, commentaries and stuff. 
but but I don't foul things up by saying, well, here's what scholars think. Uh, let, let, let's look at the first century and let's look at the biblical text and how do we therefore interpret it well. Do you, do you ever, given that that's the gospel you're looking at, do you ever make reference in that book or somewhere else to the fact that the the church fathers did not want to include the book of Revelation in the canon of scripture for a very long time because they thought it was a very odd, sort of crazy non-canonical book that shouldn't be in the canon, and it was included very late. Do you get into that at all? I'm not, that, that's not a loaded question as in that doesn't necessarily mirror my view or not. I'm just asking you. I always found that fascinating that it's, uh, that it was such a latecomer and for the, given the fact that so many kind of cultic and odd things have grown up around end times theology these days that also fit very much in with the kind of apocalyptic Trump, Trumpian view of the world that God had raised him up to somehow be part of the end times itself, um, whether it's moving the embassy of Tel Aviv to Jerusalem or, you know, any of the sort of John Hagee approach to biblical prophecy out of the kind of Christian Zionist movement in the evangelical church. I mean, there's so much that goes on there that ties into the book and other books of biblical prophecy. Uh, you know, sometimes I wonder if the church fathers weren't right and that it was a mistake to put it, to, to include it, because it, it doesn't seem to do anything very good for anybody. Yeah, well, let me... Um, I don't know if that's your view or not, or even mine. I'm just throwing it out there. Let me modify some of your insights there a bit. Um, you have uh, you, you have opposition to millenarianism mm -hmm. and uh, opposition to apocalyptic speculation and we're the good guys, they're the bad guys kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Necessarily. So, so, so those were the concerns. And it's not that... So it's how people were using Revelation. And You're talking about the church fathers now? Fathers, yeah. So Revelation wasn't actually one of the latest books to be canonized. It was connected with John from early on, although Eusebius thought it might be John the Elder as opposed to John the Apostle. But you have some other works that even got added later on. And part of the Talk about those for a minute, because I think the, the forming of the canon is something that's of interest to people, given the impact the Bible's had on the on the world, you know, how it came to be is kind of interesting. If you give us a little lesson on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so really, m most of the books in the New Testament are, are coming together as canonical in the middle second century. Um, the books that were held at bay a little bit for another couple of centuries. I mean, I mean, uh, it was 367, the canon of Athanasius, which is mm -hmm. Confirmed in 419 and 421 in Carthage, um, when all 27 books are affirmed as they are. Um, books that were uh, held at bay a little bit was primarily because they were written to individuals. And so you have uh, uh, Second John and Third John uh, written to the chosen lady and her children and to Gaius. Uh, and then uh, the pastoral epistles to Timothy and, and Titus and then Philemon. So some of the issue there was whether we, we should include personal correspondence as opposed to letters that are that are to churches and stuff. But you're right that sometimes it's the way people were using text that got them into trouble. Mm. Um, now, I also don't think that Revelation is, is futuristic. Um, I think that Revelation is written to an audience that's undergoing a Roman uh, hegemony and occupation. So I would say that Revelation, if understood biblically and literally, uh, is prophetic but not futuristic. So it calls for allegiance to Christ and not to empire. And so I think that that, that could help us think about how to be America better. 
not trying to be an empire, but, but trying to further justice and love and goodness and truth in the world. In my view, that's the true America. And, and, and sometimes America has lived into that. And mm. so I would push back against those who interpret Revelation as we're the good guys, they're the bad guys. I said, no, no, um, it's following Christ. The, uh, it, it's standing up for the truth. Mm. It's caring for the needy. Those are the ways to glorify Christ as opposed to hegemonic domination. Yeah, given that's your view, which, which uh, you know, is very attractive to me, of course, you know, given what I think about things in the world. Um, uh, I wonder why that doesn't have a wider application within gen the general evangelical community these days. You know, why does that view strike me as such a minority view? I mean, that not, not in the sense of minorities in the racial or ethnic sense, but in numerically, you yeah. certainly are not speaking for mainstream American white evangelicalism. Now, let me disagree with that a little bit also, because really good Bible scholars, um, they would say, of course, that's what it's about. Uh, of course, that 666 is about Nero Caesar or Neron Caesar, 616, some ancient manuscripts is Nero Caesar. So that's a Hebrew convention. We'll call it gematria. Mm. You take numbers as, or you take letters as a way of spelling out numbers. And so the way that that originated is uh, that uh, during the persecution of Nero, who passed away in 68 AD, that was a way of saying, look out, that's a Roman informant. Uh, they're in Rome. But the second beast um, in Revelation 13 is, is Domitian. Let me tell you what Domitian was doing. He, his, he, first of all, um, he was the third emperor in the Flavian dynasty. Uh, so his father, Vespasian, was the Roman general who, who cleaned up on, on, uh, on Jerusalem and destroyed the city. So when, when you look at that view, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, and which makes a lot of sense to me, what's the history of why this is not the view taught by most evangelicals? And I would put it a second way, why is this huge scam and fundraising uh, opportunity constantly revisited by authors like Hal Lindsey and the late great planet Earth, and then all its iterations up to probably to yesterday morning with Paula White or whomever is into prophecy now, you know, Jim Baker in the day, Pat Roberts and all these other people. It, it seems like the entire evangelical televangelist market that secular America judges all Christianity by and has uh, on one hand, and then just the fundraising opportunities in, in the end time stuff yeah. has been so vast that the view you're putting forward, which sounds pretty well grounded and academic and sensible to me, um, you know, is unknown to people, another, and not just within the evangelical community, but the general world or the secular part of the United States would look at evangelicals, they would not even know that a guy like you exists, or at least with the views you're having, but obviously you're not the only person putting them forward. Why has that, why is that view completely unknown outside of your head and the people you're talking about and a few other people? Yeah. Well, there, there's a great um, popularity uh, within apocalyptic speculation. Mm -hmm. and when, even when you look at the history of Christianity, um, uh, you have people in, uh, you know, in, in reading biblical text, the tendency to see us as the good guys and them and the bad guys as those other people out there. I will say um, that this, this also is sometimes what liberals will do as well. <laughs> say, well, this is us versus those evangelicals or sure. 
we're the right guys, they're the bad guys. Um, what what I think is going on though, and, and let, let me morph towards um, the beasts, the Antichrist and 666, as what's going on as, as a Gospel of John and Johannine writings scholar. So um, I've, I've uh, written three books on John. The Christology of the Fourth Gospel was my Glasgow dissertation. Uh, it's been published in three editions by now, which is, which is pretty amazing for a doctor. You're doing pretty well. <laughs> Looking at, you know, what's the epistemological origin of John's theological tensions? Uh, or, or, you know, ha how does John's presentation of Jesus as human and divine, how did that stuff come together? Mm. Uh, well, then I had to write a book on the historical Jesus in John, because some of it's theological, but John has more archaeological and historical data than all the other Gospels put together. So I've been pushing back with the John Jesus and History Project against the Jesus Seminar and against 150. And when you say against the Jesus Seminar, the Jesus Seminar was a group of people who were liberal scholars in the sense that people listening to this take it, not the way you're using it so much within the Quaker uh, denomination and faith um, against the, you know, with the traditionalists going back into the 19th century or whatever. Um, but where are you on that? Uh, I charts the wrong word. I don't know how to, I don't want to box you in, but you know, when, when you're, when you speak in terms that lay people would understand who are not, you know, into what you're doing and probably don't know what the word epistemology means, for instance, how do you, how would you describe yourself on that spectrum? I mean, with nuts and bolts stuff in terms of how literal do you, as your approach to scripture, you know, when you talk about the divinity of Christ, are you talking about a literal resurrection? Are you talking about son of God stuff where he sits in the last judgment? I mean, how are, where are you personally on this? And then where do Quakers come in on this? I know some of the answers to that, but I'm asking for myself, but also for folks listening. Yeah. Well, well here, just as a New Testament scholar, I think the fact is that you have theological tension in John on every single issue. Hmm. So I'll call these the riddles of the fourth gospel. That's my third book on John. Give us <laughs> so some examples of those tensions. Jesus is human and divine in John, equal to the Father, subordinate to the Father. The Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son in John. I mean, that was an issue that divided uh, the Orthodox Church from Western Catholicism in ten. Sure. 1054 AD. Uh, how about this? The miracles are embellished in John, but blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. How about universalism in particularity? John 14, 6, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one goes the but by him. On the other hand, the light of Christ enlightens everyone. So it's both particularistic and universalistic. Uh, you have no Eucharist at the Last Supper, but you must eat my flesh and drink my blood, or you have no life in yourselves. Uh, Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. Salvation is of the Jews, but then the Jewish leaders are the ones who reject Jesus, you see. And, and so and so you've got you've got theological tension on every single issue in John. So for people who say, oh sorry, one way Jesus only, wrong answer, you, you go to hell. Well now wait a minute. How about John is also the most universalistic <laughs> part of the Bible? How about the light of Christ? Can a person be reached by the light of Christ uh, even if they haven't heard the Jesus story? And, and so and so what you have to and, and so you know, you, you've got these theological tensions, you have historical problems, like, okay, if Jesus really spoke in parables, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John has no parables. Um, in, in, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus goes to Jerusalem only one time, 
In John, he goes there four times, and we have three Passovers in John. In the Synoptics, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, the temple incident happens at the very end, and that's why they arrest him, or at least a few days later. In John, the temple incident happens at the beginning. Uh, in John, Jesus raises Lazarus. Uh, he speaks in I am language. He had, you, you have the wedding miracle, but those things are only in John. So these are some of the reasons why liberal scholars, critical scholars for the last century and a half have said, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. John is so different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke that, that both can't be historical. You have to choose one or the other. And because John is so theological, therefore John is not historical. And so that's why David Strauss in, uh, in 1865 wrote a book on the Christ of faith and the Jesus of history, actually versus the Jesus of history. Yeah. <laughs> so critical scholars have gone with Strauss saying, I mean, I mean, being positivistic, like not trying to make any mistakes. Sure. If you're going to have sure stepping stones. So you know, where, wait, wait, let me just stop you there because I get the gist of what you're saying. Where do you come down on this personally? Forget well, that you're a professor, just as a man of faith and wrestling with these issues in terms of uncertainty and paradox and contradiction and all these other things. How, how do you see this? Well, yourself. Well, let me speak continuing with science, because I'd be happy to believe that there's nothing historical in John. But the problem is that John has more archaeological details than other, other, all the other Gospels put together. Okay. Mm -hmm. John has more mundane references than, than Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and, and certainly the Gospel of Thomas. And so the, the problem is, is a factual one. Uh, regardless of what I think. And and so now, now the Jesus Seminar, this is founded by, by Robert Funk and, and sure. all of like uh, John John McCrossan and my friend Marcus Borg. Uh, Marcus and I did a set of, of three dialogues at Reedwood Friends Church in Portland, Oregon back in 2010. Uh, he, 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 he took a synoptic side, I took a Johannine side, and we call this Jesus and the Gospels in bioptic perspective. Okay. But, so my judgment is that Mark and John are the bioptic Gospels, two different perspectives from day one. Matthew and Luke built upon Mark, John builds around Mark. It's different on purpose. So, so a part of what we've done at the national meetings of Society of Biblical Literature, the John, Jesus, and History Project, and we've, we've published eight books. Book number nine is in press right now with Erdman's on archaeology and John. Um, we've just been asking hard questions about two critical platforms. One is the dehistoricization of John. Like there's nothing in John historical because it's all theological. Well, now, wait a minute. How strong is that? And the other is therefore the de-Johannification of Jesus. Sometimes you have to invent a word. Okay. <laughs> okay. So now you're going to, we get the other stuff, but tell us about Johannification. What on earth are you talking about? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So um, it's a fact that John's Jesus speaks in the language of the of the evangelist and so or you know who, i mean whoever wrote john um jesus speaks a lot like his language okay at the end of john 3 um, verses 31 to 36 is john the baptist speaking but my goodness it sure sounds like jesus in 12 44 to, to 50. right so is that jesus language put in the mouth well, of which gets to a big point that people from the secular community would ask and that is, they would say, well, we love it how these pastors and priests, Jesus said this and Jesus said that. Jesus didn't say anything because he didn't write anything down. We don't know what Jesus said. We know what a bunch of people 
often quite a bit later, say he said, so why don't you tell the truth and say, John says Jesus said, rather than ever saying directly Jesus said, um, or Luke says Jesus said, or whoever Luke was said Jesus said. There's a lot of, you know, evangelicals and Roman Catholics and others, Greek Orthodox patriarchs, don't seem to have very much daylight between the truth of how this was all reported and the fact that we don't know what Jesus said. We only know what people say he said. Is this a subject that sort of comes up within you call the Johnification or whatever it is? Is that kind of what you're talking about in terms of style or do you just not ever go there? Well, I think you have to go there in doing historical critical study. Hmm. So I, and I also agree with, uh, with, with a modest approach. So you have Jesus according to Mark. You have Jesus according to John. Um, my point on de-Johannification, uh, which is, you know, I, I, I'm overstating what my seminary yeah. was doing. But assuming that John's theological and not historical, which is also fallacious, because Mark, Mark's theological also, okay? Yeah. <laughs> and so is Matthew and Luke. So they're all theological and they're all historical, but in, in different ways. So what, 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 the, what the Jesus Seminar was trying to do, though, if I can speak of uh, conservative scholarship, they were trying to be conservative in preserving what critical scholars had come up with over 150 years regarding a minimal understanding of Jesus and what he said and did, as opposed to um, anything that might be questionable. Mm. Boltmann's most famous student would call this sure stepping stones. Let's try to not make any mistakes. And so in not trying to make any mistakes, it's safer to go with Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And then, and then they drew in the Gospel of Thomas, which is questionable, um, but, but they still drew Thomas in. I mean, it's a second century Gnostic uh, collection of 114 sayings. Um, but, but saying, okay, th this, this is, is the, um, at, Jesus at least did this. So my friend Marcus Borg would say, okay, at, instead of Jesus only said this, how about this? He at least said these things. Yeah. And I can appreciate that. Uh, but therefore, they, they said, um, let's leave John out. And so even if it's in Gospel of Thomas or in Matthew or in Matthew and Luke, which could be the Q tradition or something like that, which, an unknown tradition that's not Mark, um, if, it, if it echoes John, kick it out because it sounds like John. <laughs> so that's what I mean about they're trying to de-Johannify Jesus. The historical Jesus did or said nothing in the Gospel of John. Now, again, I can appreciate they're trying to not make mistakes, but that seems to be an overreach. Into, okay, so, so, so how do you know that John, the, the, the nothing in John is historical? So anyway, um, critical, so, so so the first three historical quests for Jesus from the 19th century up into, you know, um, you know, like, like, like recent decades have, have left John out. But I'm championing a fourth quest for Jesus, which is more inclusive. And this will also, I think, speak to the nuns that you're mentioning. So yeah. a fourth quest for Jesus, which is the title of one of my next books, okay, Jesus in Johannine Perspective with Erdman's 2022, a fourth quest for Jesus. 
I'm arguing that we need to emphasize the spirituality of Jesus that is beyond Christianity. Hmm. Therefore, the Gospel of John is going to help us do that. Yeah. It's an inclusive quest in that it's beyond Christianity and beyond fundamentalism, but it's also beyond the synoptics. It includes all sources. I'm happy to include Thomas, but you have to find a way to also make space for the Gospel of John, even though sometimes I think the synoptics are historically more accurate than some of the stuff in John. What do you do with the, the train of thought that comes out of the Greek Orthodox Church at this point, and not so much in the West, but used to be also in the Western Roman Catholic iteration of Christianity, and that is that the Gospels and the, the Bible itself are part of a tradition which speaks to the presence of God in our lives and who Jesus was, but that the tradition within the church also does, and that in fact some of that tradition in the liturgical sense predates the writings so that the idea that this kind of Western idea of Christianity, that everything is in the writings, it's the Bible said, the Bible says, the Bible says, um, is actually a completely wrong approach. That tradition, it's the liturgical tradition itself is the final repository of the truth of what the gospel itself is only a part of in terms of driving at, that the written word and the understanding of that word is not the key to understanding either the person of Christ or God and God's presence in our lives. Now, that's not exactly how the church states it, but you know what I'm talking about. How, how do you as a Protestant, I guess Quakers are sort of Protestants, um, fit in with that? Yeah. Well, I've just written an essay on that very subject, and I've expanded it to be included in the World Council of Churches book on, on scripture among the traditions. Mm. Um, and so the uh, the way that I that I titled um, the, the 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 first uh, draft of the essay is inspiring readings of the inspired text. So how does God speak to us through Scripture, existentially and personally? And there, okay. So here, a Quaker theologian, Robert Barclay, uh, who was who wrote the first systematic Quaker theology in uh, sixteen seventy six and seventy eight. He wrote he wrote it first in Latin, and then he translated it into English two years later. Um, he argues that the final authority of Scripture is not the written text, but it's the spirit behind the text. He said the final authority, or maybe the first authority, <clears throat> is the Holy Spirit who inspired Scripture. So unless you're reading Scripture um, spiritually and prayerfully, you might not be getting at the marrow of the text. <laughs> to, 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 reduce, to reduce inspiration, Holy Spirit, okay, so in Orthodox sense, which, which would come through oral tradition and preaching and editing and that kind of a thing. Well, an iconography and the entire liturgical calendar of worship. Uh, right. And, and so the inspiring work of the Spirit behind the written text, that's really what is being talked about uh, in, in 2 Peter 1, the Spirit who is inspiring the writing of the text. That's what's authoritative, not mm -hmm. the the reformers. <laughs> and, and, and so uh, the way that I would talk about that is that it's important to read the Bible prayerfully. Uh, you have to, you know, get into what's the meaning here? Um, what meanings are the words conveying? Now, now here's what Barclay will also say. Um, the, the written word of scripture will also, the objective written word will also challenge our subjective inferences of what the spirit might be saying. 
And so it becomes an objective referent by which to check subjective readings. But the whole goal of reading scripture is to be open to the Holy Spirit who inspired the writings to begin with. And so, you know, I think that's a pretty good hermeneutic to, to, to be open to. Well, we're going to wrap this up in just a second here, but I want to uh, say again that you have been listening to In Conversation with Frank Schaefer, and today I've been talking with Professor Paul Anderson, and uh, the author of many books, um, including uh, some new ones that are going to be coming out that actually sound very interesting to me, this one that you're working on uh, to bring John back into the discussion. Um, Paul's book, Following Jesus, the Christology of the Fourth Gospel, is out now, and uh, that's available. The one you're working on, when did you say 2022? There's another one coming out with Erdman's? Uh, that's Jesus and Johannine Perspective, uh, a fourth book yeah. for Jesus, yeah. That, that sounds very interesting. Um, so I thank you for being with us. Uh, again, if, if you have enjoyed this discussion and would like to hear more like this, please like this podcast so other people can. Uh, Take a look at my new book, Fall in Love, Have Children, Stay Put, Save the Planet, Be Happy, in bookstores now, and uh, in which basically my thesis is that we can define success two ways. One is by career, material possessions, paychecks, power over others. The other is in the interpersonal relationships we have with others and the receiving and giving of care. And it seems to me that's where we find more joy than in the materialistic pursuit of what this world defines as success, which is also destroying our planet, by the way, uh, getting to the last part of my title. So, uh, Paul, thank you so much for your time here. Um, and we will talk again. And I, I'm really grateful for you taking the time to explain so many interesting things to us. And I would, again, just tell people that if they want to get in touch with Paul or read his books, we will have links with this podcast and wherever we have this discussion uh, we will have all links that you provide, Paul, to my, my uh, producer, Ernie, and he will post those with this wherever it is. So thank you so much for this taking this time with me. And, um, and, and let me say thank you. Thanks. Let me say thank you for your good book. I, th I really love what you're talking about, family life. Um, that really is the way I was raised also, and, and that really is the priority. So maybe we can uh, you know, turn people towards being good family members. That would be great. Well, maybe you should get me to come out sometime and we'll, we'll when you take a time to break from the Gospel of John for two minutes and we can do a, a fall in love, have children stay put, save the planet, be happy, uh, Quaker uh, uh, discussion, because there's a huge overlap with what the Quaker church has stood for, for a very long time. And what I'm actually saying, um, maybe not on the theology, which is not so much in the book. I'm not, this is not a book on theology, but certainly the aims of life. I think that most Quakers would have in history agreed with my definition of, quote, success, as opposed to the way we define it now. Yeah, I agree. Thanks. Thank man. you so much. I'll, I'll see you again out there, Paul. Thanks. Take care now. You too. In Conversation with Frank Schaefer is a production of the George Bailey Morality and Public Life Fellowship. It is produced by Ernie Gregg and hosted by Frank Schaefer, author of Fall in Love, Have Children, Stay Put, Save the Planet, Be Happy, a post-pandemic blueprint for rebalancing work and family in favor of love and living. To learn more and support the show, please visit lovechildrenplanet.com.